Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. I was talking with a guy today via the internet. We were going back and forth, and uh, he had heard about the ministry of Calvary Chapel and what makes us different. And, you know, he was asking, so do you guys actually literally go through the entire Bible chapter and verse? And I said, yes. And he said, how do you do that? And I said, well, it is God's word, isn't it? So if God authored his word... And he intended his word to say something to us. He must have had a plan and a purpose for the entirety of it, or he wouldn't have given it to us. And so we do believe that the entirety of the Bible has something to say. Uh, In regards to that, we find ourselves here in the book of Amos. And if you look at this, this is a historical account of an ancient people Uh, that have long since passed into eternity uh, some nearly 3,000 years ago. But there's a message in this for us today. There's a message for you tonight. There are truths contained in this passage that are just as relevant as the day that Amos the prophet spoke them to Israel. And so tonight we find the Lord's issues with Israel. Remember, in the context of this particular book, always essential that we look at the context. We want to know why God would have written this, who was he writing to, what was his primary purpose for writing these words, why do we have it today? And the answer to that is God is using a prophet to instruct principally the northern kingdom the ten tribes that compromise what during that day and time was called Israel. This is part of the Jewish people. So Jacob has 12 sons. Two of them are in the southern part that we've seen. This begins God's word to Israel. And there was a problem in Israel. There was a problem in the north. And God is about to speak to that. And As he speaks, it's interesting that the issues that were in that land that day have not changed much in our land today. The things that God speaks through the prophet Amos to the children of Israel are very similar things. If a prophet were to arise among us, uh, these same words actually could be spoken to our world right now. And so as we pick up in verse 1 here in Amos 3, we'll take the entire chapter. We're going to see that God still plays no favorites. Remember, these are his chosen people. These are the ones that he's delivered. These are the ones he's spoken to. These are the ones that he gave the law to. These are the ones that he gave the tabernacle to, ultimately the temple to. These are the ones whom God had selected from all of the nations of the earth. So far as the Bible is concerned, of all of the nations of the earth, Israel is uniquely blessed. 
They are God's chosen people. We happen to be grafted in in that sense. God has also adopted us as his children, as Gentile believers. But Christ came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so God has a plan for his people, but his people are supposed to be as he is. Holy, righteous, living lives that would be marked by godly living and separation from the world that they live in. That's a message that still resonates with us today. Amen? God's people are supposed to be living lives that indicate that we are God's kids, we are holy and chosen of the Lord, and we live in a fashion that testifies who our heavenly parents are. Who's our father who saved us in the first place? And so chapter three here in the book of Amos, Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you'd speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse one, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. And so again, this is an indictment. He's speaking Uh, To national Israel, the ten tribes in the north, O children of Israel, and against the whole family which I brought up out of the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all of the families of the earth. Now I want you to realize how exact and specific that is. God's actually saying out of all of the families of the earth, everyone who's on the face of the planet, Out of everyone who exists at that time, you alone did I treat that way. You alone did I speak to that way. You alone did I do these things for. You alone received my word. You alone got the prophets. You alone were spoken to like no other people on the planet. Now in a very similar way, Because spiritual things are spiritually appraised, the church today in the world has that same basic standing. Though not the promises of Israel, that is a specific promise to Israel, to national Israel. But as far as the standards whereby God expects us to live our lives, he's spoken the same things to us. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Paul would write to the Roman church in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. We are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, for it is our reasonable service. In other words, in light of the very thing that's being written here to the Jewish people, spoken to us as Gentile believers, it is only reasonable that we should give the wholeness of who we are to the Lord. Everything about us, everything we can do, all that we say, everything we can be, our hopes, dreams, aspirations, everything about us is supposed to be separated for God's usage. In other words, the church is supposed to be holy as God is holy. And so here in Amos chapter 1, we see what God writes to Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, and therefore, ouch, I will punish you for all your iniquities. 
Why is that important? Because that's actually a sign of love. That's actually what God does to his children because he loves them. He chastens those whom he loves. He he doesn't let us continue in sin because he knows where it goes. He always, if he loves you, keeps us on a short leash with sin. This is God's method of dealing with his kids. If he loves you, you're going to have conviction. If he loves you, you're going to feel constraint. If he loves you, you're not going to get very far down the road of life's sin without God speaking into your life and saying, no, Jeff, that's not okay for me. I don't want you going down that road. This is the wrong way. The right way is over there. You need to go over there. That way is the wrong way. God has never treated his children differently than that. He has always had a word for his kids. And his word is, look, I don't play favorites. I am an equal confronter of sin in that regard. God doesn't play favorites. Now, people will always say, well, you know, so-and-so has been doing that for years. So-and-so's gotten away with that for a decade or more. So-and-so did this, and they never went through what I went through. Be very careful that you don't compare how God deals with you to how he deals with somebody else. Because God knows all the minutia, the filled-in details, the things about your life versus their life, your situation versus their situation. He knows your thoughts, says the Lord. And so God doesn't necessarily always, in one person's life, deal with them exactly the same as he deals with other people. Some people it seemingly get almost a free pass on some of their issues, where if I were to do those same things, I would probably feel the holy baseball bat of correction. Now, I know you guys can probably identify with that in some area of your life, you know, to where you have some issue that God's delivered you from, and the moment you step back into that place, God just whacks you right between the eyes. Says, no, Jeff, you can't do that. You can't think that way. You can't go there. And then verse 3, a principle that I pray each one of you tonight will pick up and carry with you for the rest of your days if you do not already have it in view. God speaking to his children about how he expects them to live of all of the families of the earth, I have known only you for my kids, therefore I won't let you get away with sin. And then he says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? In other words, whether it is God and you, Israel and God, the church and the Lord, individual believers and their God, or Christians who all claim to name the name of the Lord, you cannot walk together unless you are agreed on which direction you're going. It's an impossibility. It cannot happen and does not happen. That is why it is so essential in your married life 
that you were agreed that God is first, your spouse is second, and you are beneath that as far as the Bible speaks about marriage. That's why it is so important that the Bible is the final authority on all things pertaining to life and godliness. We don't take what we do from this world. We do not compromise on the things that God has said about what we are supposed to be. We get that from the Lord. Why? Because we can't walk together. We won't go someplace if there are two directions we're trying to go. If we are not agreed in who's going to lead us, and for Christians, that would be all of us being led by the Holy Spirit. There's only one of those. Only going to give us one set of guidelines. Going to move us all the same direction. We can't go together unless we are agreed. Now, why would we really concern ourselves with this? Because the first question that comes up here in verse 3 is, are you with me or not? Are you with the Lord? Because if the Lord has spoken on something, some area of life and some area of living, he has an opinion, his word declares what it is, then for the body of Christ, that is our mandate. So when it comes down to things like marriage, God's word says it's between a man and a woman. And in fact, it can't be between two men and it can't be between two women. God has defined marriage as between a man and a woman. And for this reason, Jesus said, a man shall leave his father and mother and a woman leave their home and the two will become one flesh and what God has joined together, let no one tear asunder. God defined marriage. So marriage, from a biblical standpoint, you can't walk together as believers if you're going this way on marriage and that way on marriage. Here's what God said about marriage. The same is true for lying and cheating and deceiving and hatred and blasphemy and injustice. The same is true. God has an opinion on those things. And when he speaks those things, that's our marching orders. That's the direction we go so that we can be agreed. So when the church has problems, let me give you a little secret where they come from. They come from within you. They come from within me. They come from within us. God has spoken. He's been clear. But because we don't like what he said, we decide to take a new path. So we are not agreed with God. Thereby, we are largely not agreed with one another. And we start going two different directions. This is so important for unity in the body of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean every single bit of minutia in everyone's life, but it is talking about biblical direction on all areas of life and godliness. So if God has spoken on something, that's how we should all see it. There shouldn't be any difference. So when God says the church is not a place for gossip, when you have a gossip within the church, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to disrupt the unity. When there's a talebearer, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to tear apart the consciousness of the church. When you have someone who's hate-filled, what do you think will happen? Well, the Lord said we shouldn't be that way. If you have someone that's like that, you're not agreed with the Lord, and thereby the Holy Spirit is speaking something 
else to the rest of the church, and you're trying to be what the church is not supposed to be. Or maybe I'm trying to be what the church is not supposed to be. We're not agreed with the Lord. And when we are not agreed with the Lord, we will also not be agreed with other people who are agreed with the Lord. And so this principle is huge in your life. We have to be agreed with the Lord. You can't walk together unless you are. Chosen people have special blessings because they're chosen. But they also have special responsibilities. This principle is, always, uh, is also found in the New Testament. So as Paul's writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there in verses 14, and six, 14 to 16, he breaks it down slightly differently, and he uses the exact same analogy. And he uses two yokes. Yoke of oxen. And he says, do not be unequally yoked. He goes on to describe what that is. Light and darkness. Good, evil, Christ, the devil. The church is supposed to be a church that expresses the unity that exists within the Godhead. Let me simplify this for you. Can you imagine that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit who are three persons, one God, decide one evening, eh, now Holy Spirit says that's wrong, God the Father says it's right, Jesus says I don't care. Think about it. Can you imagine? I'd be a little bit problematic, you think? And that's exactly the way God looks at us with regard to what he has plainly told us via his word, confirmed by the Holy Spirit, prayed about, prayed over. When God says something, the body of Christ is supposed to be in agreement on that thing so that we can walk together. Israel had decided they were not going to do what God had said. We're not going there. We don't care what you said. And so God says, prepare to get chastened. So here's the key and here's the clue. If you decide that you are no longer in agreement with what God's word says, I can guarantee you something's going to happen in your life. You're going to get a spanking. Because God loves you. And God wants to walk together agreed with you. And so because he has the upper hand, when you tell him, you know what, no, I'm just going to leave this marriage and there's no biblical grounds, prepare to get a spanking. You decide that you don't want to render taxes unto Caesar and you're going to just pretend like you didn't make any money and you're going to lie in your tax return, prepare to get a spanking. If you decide you like drunkenness, prepare to get a spanking. If you decide that you want to have premarital sex because you think it's appropriate, prepare to get a spanking. Do you understand what I'm saying? When God speaks, those are the things that we are supposed to do. They're not questionable. We don't say, well, we think differently. That got Israel in trouble, and it will get you in trouble too. Just know that God's character hasn't changed. 
what he said, that is his word on the issue. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, are you with me or not? He goes on to help us understand this. I I posted a little thing on Instagram today. You know, people often, you know, are kind of, mesmerized by new and upcoming things. We, we have a plane that's been constructed out in the desert in Mojave. Uh, it, it's, it's called the Strato Launch, but what it is, it's kind of like if you glued two 747s together. It actually has literally two cockpits. It has six 747 engines on it. It's designed to take hypersonic rockets into space and actually launch them from the edge of space. That's its purpose but it literally has two pilots. There's one in each fuselage, and between it, there's a place to hang a missile. Can you imagine if those pilots got into each of their own cockpits? No, let's go right. No, I want to go left. No, flaps up, flaps down. You know, full thrust, no thrust. You you, You get the picture. It's like we're in the same plane. The plane is only going to be able to go one direction, And to the extent we're agreed, we're going to accomplish the goals that God has for us. That is the picture that we find here in Amos. The children of Israel had decided they want to pilot their own plane. They want to have control. But what they didn't recognize was God was sitting in the actual control seat. He was the one that ultimately was going to take them wherever they were going to go. His will would be accomplished They just thought that they could overcome him. And so God gives them a few little words. Does the, will the lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Uh, The answer to that is no. Will a young lion cry out of his den when he's caught nothing? Answer, no. Will a bird fall into the snare on the earth when there's no trap for it? Answer again, no. Will a snare spring up from the earth if it's caught nothing at all? Answer again, negative, no. God's saying, look, these things are sureties. We have to be agreed because what I said is exactly what I mean. there's, There's no us being in charge in this picture. God's basically saying what I say goes. He goes on, does the watchman blow his shofar for fun? No, he doesn't. You see, the watchman's job was to stand on top of the wall. If danger was coming, if the children of Israel needed to be warned, the only time that shofar was blown by the watchman was if there was trouble. And so all of these pictures point Israel, point you and I towards God says what he means. He means what he says. The same thing. I've grown up, many of you, I can look around the room and, you know, there's some of us in this room that we're around, we're the same age, same generation. Uh, And here in coastal California, especially during the Second World War and then the Korean War and then the Cold War. Um, We still have here on the coast, most of them have been disabled, but we still have air raid sirens. Why is that? Because they're for air raids. They were just in case 
There were Japanese submarines that were, for instance, shelling Long Beach. When I grew up in San Diego County, we'd visit my aunt who lived in Pacific Beach. Same thing, Mondays, every day at, every Monday at noon, if we were there during the summer, there goes the air raid siren. What was it for? It wasn't just to make loud noise. It had a purpose. It was to warn eventually of an impending attack. So God uses these examples. They, they weren't meaningless. They weren't veiled threats. They were basically saying, look, if I tell you something, you're supposed to respond to that. If I say something to you, you're supposed to be listening. Verse 7, for surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. In other words, God doesn't punish us. God doesn't give us information that we don't know about and then hold us accountable for things we don't know about. He holds us accountable for what he said. What we do know. And so therein lies that condition where you see somebody in your life who maybe has the same bad habit or the same sinful thing that's going on in their life that maybe someone else does. And this person over here who's walked with the Lord for a long time actually gets a pretty severe beat down from Jesus. They went off on a tangent and they're in a place that they shouldn't be and they know it's not supposed to be that way. God deals differently with willing sin than he does unknowledgeable things that are against his word and his will. That's why children aren't held in account for things they don't understand as a child. And so God's basically instructing us to say, look, we can't walk together unless we're agreed. In verses 8 and 9, he mentions Ashdod, these palaces of the people. That's one of the foes of the Israelites, and of Judah, the Philistines ultimately. Also of Egypt, which was just at the south of them, even though at that time Egypt was kind of a friend to Israel. Of verse 8 it says, A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? Proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod, in the palaces of the land of Egypt, and say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria, and see these great tumults in her midst, and those who were oppressed within her. When Israel began to sin, the people who wanted to live righteously were oppressed. Kind of sound like anything that's been going on in, in our world, in our country, for the body of Christ? It's like it's mind-boggling. The church has been blamed for about everything that's going on in the country you can possibly think of. And here we have God saying much the same thing to the children of Israel. God wasn't playing games. Look, this is how it goes. And so he mentions Ashdod. And in doing that, he's talking about the palaces where the Jewish people uh, held their highest rulers. During this time, Jeroboam, Jehu, lived in Megiddo. They went back and forth between here and Samaria. So the plains of Jezreel, the valley of Escadrillion, this place that we all know from Revelation chapter 16, that one day 
uh, will be the site of the Battle of Armageddon. It's named after Har Megiddo, which is the Mount of Megiddo, which is where you're standing in that picture. You're literally looking out from the ancient iron, actually late Iron Age area. Um, This particular settlement has been there since roughly the time of the flood. There are 28 different civilizations that exist in that particular spot. But here is this this city-state that should be standing for the Lord that ends up being a place where all these godless rules are are issued, where the, the worship of the most foul of the Canaanite gods, Ashtaroth, Baal, the storm god, the god of promiscuity in essence, and all of these things that were going on within the, the, the mindset of the Jewish people, Israel in the north, they're like, well, this is actually kind of good. You know, we want to be relevant. We, we want to make sure that we're at peace with our neighbors. So to make peace with their neighbors, they said, well, you know, we know God said this, but we want to do something else. God said, no, I'm going to judge you. That's not okay. And so the message for us is this. God is actually going to take care of all of those inequities that we see in this world. He's going to do that in a time that fortunately for us is still in our future. Those of you that know the Lord won't be here for it. He's going to take care of it out there in those plains. In a battle called the Battle of Armageddon. But in the meantime, he expects his church to represent him on this earth just like he expected the kings that ruled from Megiddo to represent him on this earth. But they didn't. And so for us as the church, there's a little bit of warning for us that we ought to take a stand for the Lord in the world that we live in right now. What was the quarrel with Israel? Their morality was gone. Look at verse 10. For they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. In other words, the government was so corrupt that it stole from the people and it caused violence to be the order of the day. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around your land. Now, he's already given us a little insight. That adversary is going to be a lion. That adversary is going to come roaring. That adversary is going to leap on its prey. And he shall sap your strength from you. Your palaces shall be plundered. And so there in Megiddo, when you look at it, there are destruction layers that go down almost 150 feet. Palace after palace after palace after palace, and all of them existed for a time and became rubble. All the way up until the time 
the top couple of layers, which were the kings of Israel. Your palaces shall be plundered. That city-state, which exists on the plain of Jezreel, on the western side of it, at the crossroads of the Via Maris, the way of the sea, Oh, the kings thought they had it all made. We've got this giant fortified city. It's believed that Megiddo is one of the oldest, if not the oldest, inhabited settlement that exists anywhere in the Levant, in the Middle East. Over 4,000 years of, of attributable humanity has existed in that spot, where you can see layer after layer after layer of settlement. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so the children of Israel will be taken out. Those who dwell in Samaria, that was the actual capital. The reason Megiddo ended up being the capital is it was the better place to live. Had a constant water supply. It had a better view. It was richly adorned. It had palaces. But those who dwell in Samaria, on the corner of the bed and on the edge of the couch, in other words, living in comfort. They don't want to do what God wants them to do. They know what God said. They don't want to be where God told them to be. You see, God told them to put the palace in Shechem between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, between blessings and cursings to make sure that they understood that God was a God of righteousness and God blessed righteousness, but God also was the punisher of wickedness. Guess guess which one God prefers to do? Bless. That's why he tells us what he expects out of us. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord your God, the God of hosts. Just in case you didn't know which God they were referring to, it wasn't Baal, it wasn't Molech, it wasn't Ashtoreth. It was the Lord God of hosts. For that in the day, not in that day, notice there, this is not in that day as in God speaking of future. He's literally talking about that in the day when this lion comes, I will punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destructions on the altars of Bethel. Bethel is supposed to be the house of God. That's what the name means. But the house of God had been turned into something else. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory will perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. God basically says, you're trying to play by your rules. I want you to play by mine. Now look, let me be really clear, because I don't want anybody to be depressed. God is intensely long-suffering. He delights to be merciful. He doesn't take delight in the death of wicked people. These things are all truths that are found within Scripture. 
But there in 2 Peter, in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says this, But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day. In other words, he's talking about time means nothing to him. God's not sitting around, oh man, it's a long time. You know, to us, sometimes five minutes is a long time if you're in the presence of the wrong person. But to God, a thousand days, as far as he's concerned, he dwells in eternity. One might as well be the other. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. You see, because God dwells outside of space and outside of time, time was created for mankind. It marks our lives. It doesn't mark God's eternity. There's no time in eternity. It's eternal. So from God's perspective, time doesn't exist. What we experience as time, he allows for us. It's not necessary for him is another way to look at it. So he is not slack concerning his promise. For us, it looks like God's been waiting around for a couple thousand years since Jesus to take care of mankind's reign on this earth of ridiculous and absurd and sinful things. We look at the world, we go, man, how much worse can it get before Jesus comes? But from God's perspective, he is not slack concerning his promises because his promises clearly say he's going to one day come back and he's going to punish all sin. Jesus is coming again. He's absolutely coming again. But notice what this promise is really about. Not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but his long-suffering towards us. The reason that Jesus has not come back yet is God is long-suffering. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He loves your unsaved neighbor. He loved you before you got saved. He is still looking at the world going, I I don't want everyone to perish. And so he is long-suffering with mankind. But... That long-suffering has a limit. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so periodically, throughout time, so that God does not appear to be just simply passing over sinful circumstances, God allows all kinds of things to get our attention. You ever wondered why world wars occur? You ever wonder why the Assyrians are going to invade Israel? You wonder why the Holocaust happened? And while it's not a precise explanation for it, God threw out time to get mankind's attention, to turn them back towards him, has allowed all kinds of very difficult things to happen to mankind. Why? Because we dwell in summer palaces. We dwell in winter palaces. Palaces. We build up, this is where the phrase ivory palace comes from, palaces filled with ivory. This Why? Because in this case, they were trading with Egypt, which was trading with Ethiopia, Nubia. You see, we get comfortable. And we get comfortable in our behavior that's not okay with God. And so God says, I don't want everyone around you to perish So I'm going to take down what it is that you're doing that's an offense to me. In other words, he said, I'm going to get your attention. And you will not be able to mistake 
because it's going to be something that you are not expecting, but you can count on because I love you. In Amos's case, he's talking about the winged lion that's going to fly in, which is Assyria. You see, Assyria, not only from its own perspective, from the world's perspective, was known as a winged lion. They called themselves that. And so consequently, if you travel to this, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, you can actually look at what the Assyrians built for themselves. This is how they wanted to be remembered. Basically, a lion that could fly. That's how fast they came upon their prey. And God's saying, look, I'm going to leave you in the mouth of a lion, and all that's going to be left is two legs. How many tribes are left? Two. All ten tribes in the north called Israel, not Judah, the two that are in the south, are going to get wiped out. There'll be little tiny remnants of each of them left, but there'll be two legs left. Judah and Levi, Benjamin by default, were a piece of an ear. And so the children will be taken out that dwell in Samaria from the corner of the bed and in Damascus in a couch. Damascus was in Assyria. They were taken captive. And in fact, they were the peoples ultimately that would become the Samaritans. So as Assyria comes in and takes 10 northern tribes captive, they actually described what they did. And you can find the record of this biblically in First and Second Kings. But you can also find it in the archaeological record that is absolutely without contest. It is total truth. So what God said would happen, not only did happen, we have the Assyrians to thank for recording what they did to the Jewish people. Because God wasn't playing around with their continued behavior that was a disrespect to the authority of God in their life and to his holiness. Now you're probably going, man, that seems kind of harsh. It is harsh. But God doesn't like elitists. God doesn't like injustice. God hates sin. He's always hated sin. It destroys. It always destroys. It's not ever good not good for you, it's not good for me, it's not good for us. And so the Assyrian lion recorded here this obelisk of Shalomancer III. One of the things the Assyrians did was they were very careful chroniclers of the things that they did to other peoples. And it was not good. And it names by name in this particular context on this black obelisk of the actual kings uh, that were alive during that time. And, and so as Jehu is mentioned, as these rulers of the Jewish people, Omri, uh, were the Israelite kings that were supposed to be in Samaria, supposed to be in Shechem, but where were they? They were in Megiddo, they were in the summer palace 
They weren't taking care of the people. They were living in the lap of luxury. And when you travel to Megiddo today and you look at the grain silos that ultimately would be for Jeroboam the king, you're going, man, these guys were storing up all kinds of good stuff for themselves while the people were starving. So the injustice that we see in our world today, God's taken note and he's literally wiped out whole people groups or allowed people like the Assyrians to do that on his behalf. And so when you look at this scene and some of the things that are contained on it, the Assyrians were actually headhunters. The Assyrians impaled people and stuck them on the side of the road. God sends that type of judgment against his own chosen people because they were inflamed with sin. Really bad things happened to God's chosen people because they wouldn't turn from sin. Now, I hope nobody's depressed right now, but I think it is fair for us to say if God would allow that to happen to his own chosen people under the Assyrians, what do you think he thinks about we who are children by grace? You haven't had to live by the law. There's not a single person in here who's ultimately probably lived completely by the law. Some of you may have tried and found it was really difficult. But most of us in this room who know the Lord have lived by grace and through faith. And so when the Assyrians chronicled all of this, they actually named the exact date of 689 B.C., when the Assyrians attacked specific kings, King Jehu and Omri, which you find in the book of Kings, which aligns with the exact timeline. So God took the time to say, look, I allowed this to happen. And here's when I allowed it to happen. And here's the king that I allowed to do it. And here's the kings of the Israelites that were affected, who were wiped out. And when you go and you view these things, you're going, God wasn't playing that the Taylor prism actually records the, the war with Judah. It would go on and they would attack Judah. Guess where that war is found? If you were with us in our study of the book of Isaiah, that 185,000 of the encampment of the Assyrians is recorded on that cylinder. So it's not just your Bible that says these things. It's the archaeological record of the very people who came and said, um, we're actually here because God sent us. Now you may be looking and going, man, that's, I don't know about that. On that prism, King Sennacherib says this, I cut their throats like lambs. I slaughtered them. He goes on to describe all these horrible things that he did. Amos actually saw that coming, and he warned the Israelites. Because the words we were reading, the words contained in this chapter, were spoken before Assyria got there. Israel said, nah, it never happened. 
We're God's chosen people. We can do anything we want. So to modernize it, put it into the age of grace, the apostle Paul said it this way, what then, should I go on sinning that grace might abound? And he answered his own question. He said, absolutely not. God expects his people to live lives that testify of him, that tell the world who he is. And so you might be asking, why would God do this? Well, in less than 100 years, from the time that Amos wrote, here come the Assyrians. But they had almost 100 years. Had almost 100 years to get things right. It wasn't like God sent Amos and then the following morning the Assyrians showed up. Had 100 years. Then the Assyrians showed up. And by the way, the Assyrians didn't fly in in Black Hawk helicopters. You could see the dust of their chariots for days before they got there. They could have repented. They could have said, Lord, we've sinned against you and turned, and I believe the Assyrians would have been turned back. God is quick to hear the cry of his children and to respond in mercy. These events were recorded not just here in the Bible, which they were. First and Second Kings, the book of Isaiah records these things. But by the Greek historian Herodotus, the Jewish historian, who was also a Roman, Josephus. And so I think God wants us to have a lesson from this passage. And that lesson is this. Sin is also always destructive. And it always has a price. You see, the devil doesn't tell you that sin has a price. The devil tells you that sin is fun. That if you do the things that God says we shouldn't be doing as believers, that it's going to be fun for you. And here's the crazy part. For a season, it is. To your flesh, it is. But the devil doesn't tell you about the price. He isn't going to tell you the Assyrians are coming. A second thing is that rebellion has a price. Notice God says there in verse 13, Listen up, hear ye. Rebellion has a price. Rebellion is just simply knowing what the truth is and not doing it. So it's not just the action of sin. It's actually taking into your hearts, your, your mind and your heart, a path that's contrary. That's why verse 3 says, how can two walk together unless they're agreed? It applies to really our whole life as believers, but very specifically with God's word. What God says, that's what he means. A third thing, not listening. Why would I say that? Because Amos is a prophet. He's speaking. The people aren't listening. Not listening has a price. Trampling the poor. Has a price. God hates injustice. That was one of the sins of Israel. It's like, look, you're taking advantage. You guys live in winter palaces and summer palaces and everybody else doesn't have a place to lay their head. 
not okay with God. God hates injustice. He hates it when people are taken advantage of. And so these things are really warnings to us in our day and time that a lifestyle that's unpleasing to God, no matter what it is, has a price. And it can be really high. Now praise God by his grace. God doesn't always give us what we really deserve, amen? And ultimately he does not give us what we actually deserve. He gives us instead mercy. He's kind to us even when we mess up. Sometimes people ask me, well, you know, I really want to be blessed. Let me give you a little secret to being blessed. Do what God says. Do what God says. If you know what the Bible says about anything in life, then do it. That is the short path to God's blessing. And so a way to modernize this, to bring it into our time, into the age of grace, is how do you think God looks at the church and I'm talking about not just this one, but the church as a whole in a place like America that has so much and he sees that we're fighting with each other and we're not agreed and we cannot and will not yield to the things that he says is true. We're, we're constantly going around. The church in America is contemplating things and doing things that are absolutely contrary to God's word. I personally believe that's a dangerous place to live. That's why I will not go for it, will not encourage it. It's why we continue to teach the Bible cover to cover in this church. Because God said what he meant, meant what he said. It's our duty in that sense to do it. What might be in store for those who spit on grace? If they spit on the law, And it got him in trouble. What do you think God's thinking about his kids who spit on grace? The blood of Christ. Well, I can tell you what he thinks. It's not good. Here's the good news. You don't have to be in that group of people. You can choose to live your life in such a way that it honors God. That it obeys his word. It causes you to walk and and you encourage other people to walk in it. You live your life for Christ, not against Christ. You live, your, you live your life where the word is the guide and what the word says, that's how we live. We're quick to forgive. We're generous. We live our lives with God's view in view, with heaven in view. We choose to live graciously because we're children of grace. And when we do that, We don't have a thing to worry about. Because the Lord also is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He's always taken care of the righteous remnant. He did not universally punish everyone. He punished the guilty. And so if you don't want to be on God's bad side... Work at being on his good side. He loves that. And when he speaks, just simply say, yes, Lord. Your servant hears and your servant obeys. Amen? Amen.
Would you stand? We'll close in prayer. God's free gate, grace gift. Yeah, there's nothing like it. What's up? You're here tonight. We've got a prayer team over in our prayer room. Maybe you need an extra dose of God's grace after service. Just go over there and say, man, what do I, what do, I do to walk in that grace today? For the rest of us, let's just be doers of the word. Let's live our lives pleasing to God. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the times that you have been so incredibly long-suffering with me. Lord, you have suffered long and been kind, exactly. As your word says, agape love really works. Lord, you haven't kept a record of wrong. Matter of fact, you've forgiven my sin as I've confessed those things. You've forgiven and cleansed, and I'm grateful for that, God. I pray for us as as an extension of the greater body, but a local body, Lord, that has authority in this community. God, would we be about our Father's business? Or when the world says we should go the wrong way, would we be going the right way so hard that they would follow us instead of us following them? Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, reveal to us areas to where maybe we're on the wrong path. Help us to change and to be agreed with you. And when we're agreed with you, we're going to find ourselves in agreement with one another. So Lord, bless us to that end. We thank you. We praise you. And we ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.